You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to The Wheelhouse. It's episode 34. We are inside the Legends Room here at Safeco Field. Jerry, it's been a little while, and uh, it's beginning to feel like fall outside, isn't it? It is. I, I wish it was getting to feel like fall, like we had, we were beating down on a postseason berth, but unfortunately that seems to be slipping away from us a little bit here. Well, we'll be talking about that in, in a little while. Remember, if uh, you have not already, be sure to subscribe to The Wheelhouse. You can subscribe on iTunes, on Stitcher, wherever you find your podcast. And, you know, Jerry, as, since you brought it up, well, let's talk about the last 10 games. It's been 10 games since we last played. The Mariners are 5-5 five and five since our last podcast. Of course, the offense was an issue uh, going into our last recording, it remains an issue uh, overall in this last ten game stretch. Where the Mariners were obviously trying to be more eight and two, nine and one, really because they had to be, as opposed to five and five. But what have been your overall impressions? I mean, just that we have played roughly five hundred ish, which is, uh, I guess, in a normal circumstance, tolerable. But when you're trying to catch a leader, it's just not, especially a leader that's been as hot as the Oakland A's. And we've talked about it. The the offense, we expected a lot out of this offense going into the season. Obviously, we, we suffered through some adversity along the way. But for the most of, of the first three months, I feel like our expectations were being met. We, we had one of the five best offensive teams in the American League by just about any measure. You know, batting average, OPS, we, we, were, we were doing everything fairly well, despite the fact that we didn't draw a walk. And then roughly about the 1st of July or thereabouts, the offense just stopped scoring runs and, and and that's been a challenge for us in the time since that that only seems to to be drifting and, and continuing as the season goes along you know I, I I look at our team and if you would have told me coming into the season that we were going to get the kind of productivity that we've gotten out of our pitching staff I, I think entering today's game our starting rotation is fifth among 15 American League teams in in war value our, our bullpen is about the same, fifth among 15 and, and more value. We've got a, a closer at least close to the, the, the pace for the all-time record in saves. I think we have a legitimate group of all-star players and contributors this year, guys like Hanniger and Segura and Nelly and, and Edwin and others who've had really strong seasons. And, and, and to be in a situation now where you feel like in the last – two and a half weeks you need something magical to happen to get back in the in the mix is a little disappointing to us for sure it's interesting because when you describe the offense from before and you describe the offense from now one constant is that the Mariners right we've known this from day one they don't draw walks very often this season but when they were getting their hits that wasn't an issue when you look at how the offense has regressed and is what it is today is this an issue of chasing pitches not swinging at good pitches? Is it a matter of hard outs? Obviously, it's not just one or the other, but something is happening now that wasn't happening then when it comes to just simply putting the ball in play. Well, I think across the board, our batting average on balls in play is down. And we weren't, I wouldn't say we were particularly lucky in the first three months of the season. We were performing to our, our norms, to, to what our players generally did, with a couple of exceptions, uh, and those being on the low side generally guys that were underperforming. In the time since the All-Star break, or roughly around the 1st of July, 
we've not experienced much luck on balls in play. We've got guys that are hitting the ball harder uh, than, than they were earlier in the season and not experiencing a good deal of luck. But you're not going to score many runs. I, I think we've had 12 or 13 fairly steady presence on our on our offensive side, you know, depending on how many pitchers we were carrying in a moment in time. And of those 12 or 13, nine of them have posted a, an OPS of 650 or below since the 1st of July. You're not going to score very many runs when that's the case. And and among the, the four that, that haven't done that, one of them is Chris Herman, who just hasn't played that often. So, you know, I, I think the the reality is that that we've got a, a group that has really struggled for for a lengthy period of time now, and we've been able to generally play to 500 mostly because Colomay and Diaz have been awesome, and Mitch Haniger, Denard Span, and Nelson Cruz have been saving the day offensively and finding ways to push enough runs across to give us that one run margin that that Alex and, and Edwin are holding up. It's interesting how different baseball is than the other mainstream sports, right? If you have a football team or a basketball team, for example, that are having some type of similar offensive struggles, right? The question is, well, what's the coach, what's the coordinator doing to fix this and that? And what can be turned around until the next game next week or tomorrow night? But baseball is so different. I mean, when you have a lengthy drought like this has been for the Mariners, it's not just as easy as Edgar pulling up the iPad, showing ex-player this swing and saying fix it and make it look like that how do you approach something in this game when it's a slump of more than just a small sample size of a week or so I, I think the biggest challenge that we face in baseball and this is this is true of almost every struggle that you'll ever see in a baseball season is that we just don't get much practice time we don't uh, other the other major sports even including the, the more let's call it high impact or or more violent sports than we play there's downtime and there's practice time in the NFL you're out there on Tuesday morning you're grinding it you're going through film you're going through application you're running plays so in the NHL I mean even on a game day you, you come out to the to the rink in the morning and you go on the skate around and, and you work through you know your your strategies and the things that you're going to employ that day. We don't really have that luxury in baseball because of the nature of our schedule. We play every day. There's a pregame practice that is mostly geared toward getting loose to play that night's game. And it's really hard to go through intense practice sessions when you have a three-hour game coming up that night and you're traveling the way we travel and, and playing 15, 20 days in a row without a day off. So I do understand the nature of struggle, and how oh, heavens knows how many times I struggled in my career. So it is, it is, it's a game that requires you to be resilient and almost to solve your own problems and and, and issues. Major league coaches, when they're clicking on all cylinders, really aren't those that that adjust mechanics as frequently as they do. They're almost built-in psychologists. They're there to they're there to help the twenty-five players get through the ups and downs, maintain a level of confidence when they are in periods of struggle, and maybe just come up with that one, even placebo, you know, here's what I see. You, you're doing X, and if you just turn the dial and, you know, get those hands a little bit higher, I think it's going to turn around for you. And, and it's probably just a placebo because you're hitting the ball hard and eventually it's going to fall in. That's the, to me, that's the case over the last 30, 40 days of Ryan Healy. Ryan Healy spent roughly two months hitting the ball hard and experiencing no luck, 
And then over the last couple of weeks, the ball started falling for him. And and uh, I think that's a baseball season. Unfortunately, we're not getting very many balls to fall for the rest of the group. It remains to be a phenomenal season for Mitch Hanniger, an all-star year. And since the start of August, he has remained one of the most productive hitters, not just in the American League, but in all of the game. We have to talk about Sunday for Mitch Hanniger. I mean, Scott Service said it afterwards that he would not essentially let the Mariners lose that game. It began with a walk in the eighth inning. And then, of course, the game-winning catch, the game-saving catch in right field. Uh, what did you make of that performance by Mitch? I, I thought it was Kelly Leak uh, of Bad News Bears fame, you know, I, I, where, where you've got the, the one kid. Everybody played with this kid in Little League, the, the guy who was maybe a little bit bigger, a little bit more bodily mature than the others, and could take over every game in the moment, seemed to be able to hit a homer at will, and, and, and could just, just rule that, that small universe. Mitch did that, and it was uh, it was pretty fun to watch. You know, whether it was the slide at home plays, it's the walk, the way he moved around the bases. He steals second, he advances to third, scores on a play that most don't. Uh, creatively slides into two bases to to make it happen, and then makes a catch that I didn't see the the Statcast feedback or the satellite feedback. I don't know what the catch probability on that was, but it had to be low it, just by the naked eye, and it was. You know, I, I love that he got off the ground and, and he, there was a little electricity to him, the let's go, because there is still an opportunity to, to go on a good run and make this. And you know, while we could not necessarily control our own destiny, we can make it interesting by showing up and playing the way Mitch played on Sunday. When I got to thinking about the players in the American League who would maybe be capable of taking over a game late in as many aspects as Mitch did at the plate, on the base paths, and in the field. When the names that come to mind, Mike Trout, Francisco Lindor, Jose Ramirez. And what do these guys have in common? Mookie Betts. I mean, these guys that are in the MVP race every single year, it really was, in my eyes, a major separator from what makes Mitch Hanniger a really good hitter, a really good fielder, to Mitch Hanniger is just a great ball player, right? I mean, that's the difference, isn't it? I think it is. And even in that game, you got the full, the full, I guess, exposure to the things he can do. If you'll recall, he made an unbelievable throw from right field to third base. That, that, that was amazing. It was a great throw. And, and if not for the fact that, that their guy slid well and that the ball was just a tick high and it took Chris Negron a, a tick longer to get the tag down, that, then that turns into another, like, sports center type moment and I think you know Mitch has done that more than than a little bit over the course of these last two years he's so fun to watch play it is and and he does it in as humble and and steady a fashion as any player I've been around doesn't have a lot of flash to him I think he knows he's good and and he and he goes out and he plays the game with intent I played with a player like that in Colorado in the 90s named Larry Walker who could he could take the game over in every facet, whether it was just instinct on the field, the way he ran the bases, the ability to hit a homer, or, or, or hitting 15 doubles in, in five weeks or whatever it's been for, for Hanny. Uh, it's been an awesome run for him. And, and frankly, like I said, you know, he and Denard and, and Nelson and, and Edwin Diaz, Colome, Wade LeBlanc, guys who've really allowed us to stay afloat these, these last couple of months while we're trying to get some traction for the rest of the group. But none of them has been more consistent than Mitch. You mentioned Edwin Diaz. Obviously, it's been a remarkable season. His save on Sunday, 
his 54th, and for perspective, because that sounds like a lot of saves, uh, for perspective, that is now all alone the fifth most saves in single-season Major League history, uh, something that Trevor Hoffman never did, something Mariano Rivera never did, get to 54 saves. I bring this up, Jerry, because there are a number of people. There's a sector of the fan base, not just of the Mariners, but in baseball, who would belittle the save because, right, it takes a certain situation for the save to come together, which we all know. Uh, but for Diaz to do it the way that he has done it this year, right? I believe Sunday was his 27th save of one run. Uh, the Mariners aren't even, I shouldn't say even close. That might be a little strong. They're not where they are, bottom line, if not for Edwin Diaz this season. I think your first thought is that what you think is accurate? Yeah, <laughs> there's, I don't think we're even close without Edwin Diaz. And, and it's a, for him to do what he has done, particularly in, in so many one-run, just high-leverage situations, you can pile up a 30-save season without it being a, a, a particularly high you know, win percentage added. You can't do what Edwin Diaz is doing, coming in in some of the situations he is, protecting one-run leads, facing truly the, the, the best lineups in the league night after night after night. And so, so rarely does it work out, especially for Edwin this year, where he's facing seven, eight, nine. He's coming in and he's facing from opening night on. He is facing the Lindors and the Ramirez's and the Bregmans and the Altuve's night after night. And he's do- done it almost flawlessly. And, and, you know, frankly, if not for the fact that our own win percentage slowed down, he, I mean, he was on a pace to, to break every natural record a reliever had outside of maybe innings pitched. Right. <laughs> I mean, he was, he was rolling along. And, uh, and this has been a remarkable season for him. I suspect that regardless of how it ends for us as a team, that Edwin Diaz is going to get MVP votes this year, and they're deserved. He's, uh, he's had a remarkable season. He has been steady and mature, and he gives you every reason to believe that this is the new who he is and and while it would be very hard to replicate the season he's having right now because it's truly one of the great seasons in the history of relief pitching there's a there's there's a steadiness and a calm to him that really makes you believe that he's come into his own and, and his prime is just beginning when people talk about and this narrative has faded it seems like the idea of you don't need a closer right you can go matchups in the ninth inning I feel like the one thing a couple of things that people often if not always overlook first of all as we've seen from Edwin because this has been maybe his greatest area of improvement right the heartbeat he can keep his heartbeat steady now like he couldn't before at times and also man guys don't give away at bats in the ninth inning Jerry they 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 might give them away in the sixth they might even give them away in the eighth they're not giving them away in the ninth inning especially if it's their home ballpark and everybody's on their feet and in Edwin's case almost every night it's a one-run game that ninth inning is a different animal than any other inning it really is. And, I, you know, I've said it before because I've tried to do it in my lifetime. It's just not that. Because, you know, another person that didn't do the 54-save the season? Me. Uh, <laughs> or the 54-save career, for that matter. But the, the idea in the ninth inning is that it's never more pressure than you have in that moment. And it's not because it's truly any different than pitching in the second inning with a one-run lead. But in the ninth inning, there is no net. The, 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 the game is over if you blow it. And, you know, there is a pressure, there's an emotion that goes along with that that you just don't get until you've been through it. And it's not for everybody. We, we happen to have two guys right now on staff that I think are exceptionally good at it. And, 
you know, and Alex Colomay for, for all the struggle that he had for that 10-day stretch in June. Alex Colomay has been a rock of, I mean, he is about as slow a heartbeat as he gets. You know, I'm not, I'm not every now and then you just want to go poke him. You know? and we're not just talking about the ninth inning. We're talking yeah. about all the time. Yeah, all the time. I mean, he is, a, he is, he is calm. He is steady. And that is, it is so comforting to Scott, to that staff down there, and really to his teammates when, when that duo comes running through in the eighth and ninth. And, and largely, I think that kind of there's let's call it death and pestilence <laughs> coming out of the gate for the eighth and ninth inning has has made our season so much more competitive uh, as a result. I don't know where it would be without them, but you know it's it's funny you mentioned the the existing without a closer. When I went to work for the Boston Red Sox in the in the winter of 2002. And, and remained with them through the end of the 2004 World Series. And, and we won a championship. And I learned a lot during my time working with the Red Sox. It was at the very beginning of Theo Epstein's run as a general manager. And the very first thing we did was was sat and discussed, as a group, we sat and we discussed the, the viability of a closer, if it was necessary. If you'll remember, the 2003 Red Sox, I think we won 95 games. We started that season without a closer. You know, we, we went in winging it. I think our most experienced save guy in the ninth inning was some combination of Alan Embry and, you know, what Mike Timlin had done five years prior. So it was uh, – and, and went in without any real notion of who was going to close, knowing that somebody would pitch the ninth inning. Because from a, from a logical standpoint, that should be doable. If a guy is good enough to pitch with a one-run lead in the seventh, why not a one-run lead in the ninth? And, and my thought at that time was two things. One, it takes a very real maturity and emotion uh, or, or ability to control it to pitch in that situation in the ninth, especially in the fishbowl like, like Fenway Park. Um, but maybe as importantly, every manager, I shouldn't say every, but most managers, if given or left to their own devices, they will gravitate toward the guy they trust the most to pitch the ninth inning. There's, so we have evolved so much as an industry, but the one thing you can't take away is the comfort that's associated with knowing who's going to get those last three outs. When it, you're up there on a trapeze and you're the flying Walenzas and you've already emptied your bullpen and there's one guy left down there and you would much rather that last guy be Edwin Diaz than not Edwin Diaz. So it's a – and as much that – you want to be creative in how you deploy your, your relief pitchers. And the, 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 I want to believe that I'm intelligent enough to understand that there is an application that exists where you can take that pitcher and throw them in there at the highest possible leverage situation in the game. But the reality is that the manager in the dugout, whether it's Scott Service or Grady Little or Sparky Anderson, they are going to gravitate toward the guy they trust the most to pitch that ninth inning on a regular basis. Therefore, you are going to wind up with a closer whether you planned on it or not. It's been amazing, and there's still plenty of time left for Diaz to cap on, which you're right, has been an MVP season for the Mariners, and he should and more than likely will get both Cy and MVP votes. And even on a broader level, like we talk at Edwin Diaz from every angle, like the mentality is fantastic. WPA is fantastic. I think listeners of the podcast generally know how good he is. He is the 10th most valuable pitcher in the American League of all of the pitchers. Like, <laughs> we're not talking just starters or relievers or people that qualify for this. According to Fangraphs work, he's the 10th most valuable pitcher in the American League. He's one spot behind Blake Snell. Like, it's just unbelievable the quality that he's put up out of the closer position. 
That is amazing. I think we, we know enough about Blake Snell at this point to know what kind of pitcher he is. Yeah, I mean, he's going out there for, he's sitting on, Snell's sitting on 157 innings, and Diaz has been just as valuable in 60-some. It's unbelievable. That's incredible. What a year for Edwin, and uh, still time left. But so, watching it every day, you, there's, you believe it. You do, yeah. yeah. It, and you know, you know, you mentioned, you know, it's nice for your own team to have your guy at the back end of the bullpen. You know, what's the absolute worst when you're trailing by two in the seventh, and you know that one of those innings in the last few innings has been Diaz. This is an opponent. You've got to well, face that. Well, you know, guy. it's funny because you bring up Snell, and when we were in Tampa Bay, one of those games, I want to say it was Joey Wendell, maybe, who's had a terrific yeah, year. Yeah, where'd he come from? You may from? say who. Yeah, but it's, it, he's it had, a, had, a I mean, he's had an incredible year. What a career season for him. I think it was Wendell who got the green light from his third base coach to run home, coming from second on a ball that was bobbled by Hanniger and it was bobbled by an inch, right? It barely got out of arm's reach. And the throw for Mitch was no surprise on the money, and Wendell was out by a mile. And the third base coach was asked after the game, you know, well, wh- why why did you send Wendell? He was out by a mile. And he said, "Have you did you see who was pitching? This was our only chance. I mean, this was going to be it. And, of course, he was hoping that when Hanniger bobbled it, that it would kick away from him by five feet and then he'd have no chance to get to it. It worked out for the Mariners. But that psyche is in the third-base coach every single time for the opposing team, obviously the manager. But you have to strategize differently when he's on the mound or when he's going to be on the mound. It's, it's a mindset. And, 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 frankly, we, on our end, we, we've experienced it very recently when we were in Oakland, you know, on, on our final Sunday in Oakland, which which is the day that we have an opportunity to either turn our, our chase into a three-and-a-half game uh, deficit or fall back to a five-and-a-half game deficit. We wound up with the latter, and if you recall, Felix went out there for the sixth inning in what was a nip-and-tuck tie game, and it was really a nice pitcher's duel and came off the rails a little bit, and we, we wound up – you know, seeding the runs in that game. And as soon as the first of those runs scored, what is the next thing you're thinking? Oh, God. Now we got Familia, we've got Trevino, and we've got Trinan. And, and they are about as good as it gets right now. It we're from the, from the truly the sixth inning on in a game, Oakland can really just lock you down. And it changes the way the team on the other end plays to the point where you're able to take starting pitching that – doesn't look particularly threatening on paper or even as you sit in the dugout watching them throw. But the stress that you feel, the, the sense of urgency that you feel when you go into the box, even if it changes the, the, your, your heart rate by a, a small amount, you, you are, your swing is that much earlier, that much in and out of the zone, you're not on time, and baseball is so critical in regard to its timing that if you miss by that much, I, I mean, you've got – portions of a second to make up your mind whether you're going to go or you're not and if you're beaten just a little bit too fast you're you're host <laughs> and and that's that's the sense that we we had that day in Oakland and I think that's the sense that most teams get when they're playing us in the in the eighth and the ninth inning unfortunately we've allowed far too much damage in the middle of the game in the sixth and seventh inning that that has that has undone a lot of the good that that we were able to, to put on the board of late. Some news coming out today, not long ago, in fact, about Hisashi Iwakuma. Jerry, what can you tell us? 
Well, you know, I sat down with Kuma yesterday, and he most recently pitched for us up in Everett in a, in a playoff scenario for the the Aqua Sox, and he's he's fought so hard to come back and and. I told him how much I admired his work ethic and him sticking through it. He's had a great run here in Seattle, but we weren't going to activate him and bring him back in September. We we were not. Uh, we're going to. We're at 39 players right now at the big league level. The only player who we don't have here, uh, who's on the 40-man roster, is Max Posey, and Max is hurt. So, effectively, to to get. Kuma onto our roster, we would have to release a player who's currently in the big leagues, which we don't think is a fair outcome. And and I had that conversation with Kuma, and I told him that the the great likelihood is we would not pursue bringing him back as a player, but always want him to remain a part of the Mariner family. And I think he's his his decision to head back to Japan at season's end and pursue uh, the potential of, of finishing out his career in the MPB. Uh, and putting his family back in their native Japan is is appealing to him. He was great sitting down and talking with him. He's a to, as much as I ever understand the my end of the conversation. He's a great guy and, and truly works hard. He's had a great impact on this organization. And I'm I'm sorry for us for the Mariners that he hasn't been able to impact the last two seasons because his steadiness and the there's. It's understated how valuable Hisashi Iwakuma has been to the Mariners or was from 2012 through 2016, and we've really missed him because he was that innings rock, that guy that you could rely on to go out and give you the six really strong innings when you needed it the most, and and we've certainly missed him. One of six no-hitters in franchise history, I think a day that a lot of people will uh, never forget, that uh, day game, midweek day game against the Orioles. And Jerry, I know Iwakuma was not here for much of your time here in Seattle, but the DePoto-Iwakuma memory would have to be at the Christmas party, wasn't it? Uh, for me as a Mariner, yes. yes. <laughs> uh, I, it was very cool. You know, Howard Lincoln and, and at that time an ownership group that was led by Nintendo – uh, gave us the go-ahead to, to bring Kuma back to expand our, our payroll budget to do it. And and he wound up having a great year for us. He won 16 games. He pitched 200 innings and, and truly kept us afloat when a lot of our starting rotation was going down around him. I, I remember the very first time I saw Kuma pitch, um, pitching for the Rakuten Eagles in uh, Kleenex Stadium. What? Th- yep, true story. Kleenex Stadium in uh, – in in Japan (laughs) and he was the thing that struck me watching Kuma is of all the guys I watched pitch in the MPB and I I spent a lot of time there over a six-year period scouting players especially the pitchers of all the guys I saw pitch in the MPB Kuma was about the most Americanized you know he he had the, the the normal let's call it the the Nippon professional baseball league pitch assortment that you're going to see the shuto instead of the, the you know the, the the sideways run on a fastball he had the really good split the things that you see in in japan that you don't regularly see here in mlb he had those things he also had a major league sinker and he was also six four ish you know with some real physical size coming down a hill and and when I saw him, I said, who is that guy? And then when I went back two years later and he's in the process of winning the Japanese Cy Young, he had a tougher time staying healthy there. Uh, he stayed genuinely or generally healthy 
for the Mariners throughout the course of his career. And, you know, I, I do think he'll go down as as one of the steadiest pitchers in the history of the franchise, truly. And, and despite the fact that it was not a particularly lengthy career with the Mariners, it was an impactful one. Did Jerry's call the Jerry's announcement at the Christmas party that Kuma was coming back? Did that predate O'Keefe as a Mariner employee? Barely. I think I was in Were you the just a little young interview blogger? process oh, there really? maybe then. Or a touch before the interview process. I know. That beat me by just a little bit. That was, what, the winter of 2015. I started Because that, was a, that was a great viral video, wasn't it? It was. I remember. I can't remember if I wrote it up. I probably wrote something on Lookout Landing about it at the time. Probably po- one of your very successful podcasts. You probably talked about it. As you remind us, probably did come up on the podcast. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Probably did come up on the podcast. Master, yeah. But still, it was a cool moment, and it was. uh, I think uh, that moment was an early sign of what we see now with this podcast, with putting those types of things, those types of moments, that type of reasoning uh, out for people to enjoy. And being a fan, then was pretty cool to be able to see that. Yeah, no, I mean, what a career for you, Akuma, as a Mariner, and uh, all the best to Sashi and, and to his family going back home. Are you a Seinfeld fan? I mean, I, I, I sign, see, the problem is I, I don't want to say yes because I feel like Seinfeld fans, like, that's all they consume. So, like, that's not me. But I, like, I've seen Seinfeld. That's not true. Have, have you seen the Seinfeld with the maestro? I'm not a Seinfeld fan, apparently. You're killing me. You're Kramer killing plays me. pool with the maestro stick? No? Yeah. The, ma- the maestro, is a, he's, he's a bit character, one of those characters that, that pops in and out of the show over, okay. over time. That is my new vote for Colin's nickname. I would like to start calling him the Maestro. Really? So that when I see other he people, pops in and out of this. I could see or? this. No, no, he's just the Maestro. He's we are we are his chorus, and he is directing. He says jump. We say it'll be great when uh-huh. it comes up in like a front office meeting. Somebody's like, oh yeah, there's Colin. He is our digital marketing corner. No, I prefer Maestro. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Exactly. All right. That even might have even some in likes. a social setting. Could you change a little your weird handle? though, but. Uh, I'll change the display name. It'll say like Perfect. Colin O'Keefe, comma Maestro. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. There you go. Nicely done. Very nicely done. It's the end of the minor league season now, Jerry. And uh, we talked about this just over a week ago. Really strong finish for Evan White, for Kyle Lewis as well. Uh, in particular, what were you most impressed with for both of those guys? Well, A, and I'll start with Kyle Lewis, perseverance. He, uh, he has had a really difficult couple of seasons you know 2017 was a wash for him with trying to recover from the knee surgery 2018 he's back on the field and it was a real grind for him and uh, the game was moving a little faster and you think about it he left the college field as the college player of the year dominated at at Everett and then effectively took the next year and a half off and and we didn't just throw him in we threw him in at a fast level in the California League, trying to catch him up, and you know it was it was a it was a stretch for him. And then we promoted him to to Double A, almost partly out of necessity, but partly out of wanting to challenge him in a different environment to see how he'd react. And his month of August was excellent. He he put together a very nice month of August. He regained the feel to control the strike zone, uh, to to discern between a ball and a strike. He showed that power stroke really to all fields. I think I mentioned this last podcast or the one prior, just hit an absolute titanic bomb over the shed in center field in in Arkansas one of the nights I was there. Also hit an oppo bomb there, which you don't do in in Dickie Stevens. That's an uncommon thing. 
So really excited about the perseverance he showed and finishing strong uh, the way he did. And then really for Evan White, it's his second half in total, but maybe more specifically, it's the, the run that he went on from August 1st to the end of the season, particularly the last three weeks where he, he was not just hot, he was torrid. And it all coincided with a, with a bit of a swing change where he positioned his hands and, and how, the, I guess, the, the degree of steepness that his bat took in entering and exiting the strike zone. He's, he did not give up contact. His, his, his ball striking or exit velocities got even harder, which was already at a very high mark, and the results kind of speak for themselves. He, there was a period of time there in August where he was throwing up an OPS of around 1,500 and was running the slugging percentage for most of the month that was starting with a 7, which is a big number. <laughs> and, you know, Evan is, is super athletic. He runs well. We think he's on a scale of 80, an 80 defender. And it's a, he's one of the fastest players in our organization. And we feel like this, this last half of the season, especially this last five weeks or so, he really started showing the offensive skills that give him a chance to be exceptional. And not just play in the big leagues, but be an exceptional big league player. You're ready for stump cheating. Oh, gosh. Yeah. First, can I tell you? Can I tell you something that that, that uh, crossed through the Depoto Shea the Shea Depoto kitchen? You know Please tell me. Um, we 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 did a little dinner share at home uh, over the, the the we had an off day last week and took the chance to to try something new, and we made a a, a ricotta cauliflower mash. That really? To the naked eye, looks like mashed potatoes, and if you get the chance, it's like four super simple ingredients. And, and it's considerably less, you know, caloric intake than a mashed potato. Uh-huh. And uh, it's, it's off the charts good. So you've listed two of the ingredients. Salt and pepper. That's it? That's it. Yeah. Awesome. If you get the chance, fire away. Now, what was the inspiration for this? Did you just run across it? Yeah, just, just winging it. Just winging know? it? This is your own chopped yeah. version? Actually, it was a collaboration, a family effort my wife and I put together. Now, was it good enough that, like, at Thanksgiving you'll be serving the mashed cauliflower? For me, my, my, my youngest daughter might protest because she is a fan of the mashed potato. Well, sure. But I think we, Wow, you like it that much. I, huh? I really did. It was awesome. All right. I'm more what else of a stuffing with guy. Well, what's yeah. the entree? What are we talking about? Uh, we went fillets. We went fillets, okay. just normal grilled fillet with not a whole lot of bell and whistle. We did a, a Greek panzanella salad Whoa, with the, right. the ricotta and cauliflower mash. I thought I'd slipped it in there because I miss talking about the food. I know. Well, You're so consumed with trying to stump me with these questions that they right. haven't gotten this to the This does feel real. like it's my fault. Yeah. yeah. Now I was about to own that up. We should almost slip in like a road eats every time we get back from the road. Favorite stops. I'm trying to think, what uh, what did I crush on the last road trip? Um, I had some good Mexican food in San Francisco, which you don't normally think of that with that, but it was. But yeah, you know, I I have not. I will say I have not eaten as aggressively, which I take full responsibility for. Yeah. I I feel like you've you've missed the mark. It's and, I mean, and San hard. Francisco. I mean, San Francisco, San Diego, where we had we were surrounded in the the gas lamp district right, right there. By a, a group of, of small restaurants, there was a little Greek spot Yeah, two blocks from the hotel that I don't know if you had a chance to pop in on. It's a new spot. Okay, I did not. Uh, let's just say we were there for Thanks two for the days, and I was there at least three times. <laughs> uh, you know, I did have a food fail, which is almost as entertaining as a 
food success in San Francisco. There's this sushi place that I've wanted to go to for like a long time, and I have no excuse for not getting there, called Akiko's. And it's supposed to be like one of the sushi places in San Francisco. And it's like at worst a 15-minute walk from the hotel. And so I set out one day, my final day in, in San Fran, to go to get lunch there. And it's one of those things where it's like you're, you know, you're walking there and you're looking on the phone on the map, right? And you're, the walking navigation instructions are never great, right? They, they're always off by like half a block. Uh, but so I'm, walk, I'm walking around the city block, which in San Francisco, I mean, we're not in Kansas here, okay? I mean, you're going up, right? And it's one of these things where it's like I'm right here and then all of a sudden I twist my phone like a quarter inch and it tells me that I'm on the other side of the block from it, you know? I, I'm literally walking around this city block in San Francisco for over 20 minutes, okay? I'm getting, like, I'm getting hot, I'm getting tired, <laughs> and it's not even a hot day. And so finally, I say to myself, this is ridiculous. Let's just do what you used to do, which is you pick up the phone and you call them, right? Where you are say, you? Help me. So have a little humility, right? So I did. I pick up, I, I'm holding the phone. I call them and I but, say. But can I interrupt and say that when you call them, do you call them and you say, my God, where are you? I've been walking out here for 20 minutes. Well, let's just put it this way. When I called them and I they I'm hot. very politely answered the phone and I said, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm on foot. I'm trying, trying to find you guys. I'm really fatigued. I said, are you on the second floor? I need sushi. And the woman said, are you wearing a black ball cap? Oh. <laughs> I'm like, e- yeah. I turn around. I'm looking right at her. <laughs> they don't even have a sign. There is a sign above the door for Akiko's that's for an Irish pub. And I walk in there. I hang up the phone. This woman's seen me walking around, to your point, Jerry, for the last half an hour. And I say, uh, am I missing the sign? And she replies, no, we don't, we don't have one. We get really busy. So I said, okay, you know, I just, it's just me. Can I get a seat at the bar? And at this point, it's probably 1230. She says, our next opening's at two. See ya. I, I can't. I gotta go. I, I don't have. I can't wait till two to eat. I'm like I got. I got stuff. I got things. So all of that, the embarrassment of seeing this woman, having this woman see me take laps around her restaurant for half an hour, all for nothing, and it'll have to wait till 2019. And they were probably the the the, the two people standing at the podium. There inevitably there are two. It's never one person. Sure. They're standing there. And they're looking at you walking by, and they're thinking, look at this idiot clown. Clearly trying to find our restaurant. That's right. Like, throw a soy sauce pack at me out the window, okay? (laughs) Do anything. Tell me that this is the spot. If I hadn't called them, I never would have found it. So as you were enjoying your Greek food in San Diego, I was still walking off the shame of my failed sushi hunt. Did it ever dawn on you just to pop in for a nice ale and maybe a, <laughs> you know, a scotch egg? Yeah, exactly. Some kind of a corned beef something. And maybe ask them where Akiko's is. So thanks for bringing up the food. I'm glad that you had a nice meal. It was enjoyable. Did you see uh, Chef Morimoto when I was here? Did oh, yeah. Say hello? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. You know, he did draw. I, I told him my wife and I just, just stopped in at Morimoto when we were up in, in Napa in July. And, and he said, the next time you're in, just let me know. And I thought, I, you know, I. I don't really have your number, but if you, know, <laughs> if you want to share it, I seem like a really good guy. Uh, I will say this: that maybe the highlight of an otherwise, you know, fairly average and disappointing sure. homestand was was Morimoto throwing out the first pitch on Saturday night and blowing up 
Chef Jeremy, who was catching the first pitch. Did you see that? I did not see that. Oh, yeah. Jeremy. Couldn't handle it? There's, I've not yet been down to humiliate Jeremy. I will. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure he's a listener. Is a, uh, Jeremy is, a, first of all, great guy. He is our Terrific. chef and is very talented himself in the kitchen. Jeremy went out with his own Chef Jeremy jersey uh, to, to catch Morimoto's first pitch. And he got back there. Morimoto, from the, the mound, from the top of the mound, the rubber, hauled off, and I'm going to say – he hummed one in there at a rate slightly greater than the average person could conjure. You know, I'm going to peg it as low mid 70s. No. Oh yeah. Seriously? Oh yeah. He he carried wow. the he carried the ball, and Chef Jeremy seemed to be tracking it just fine. Completely whiffed the ball. Didn't lay glove on it. Stopped it with his chest. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it it carried him to the ground. He picked it up. Smiled, and you know he's thinking to himself, "Oh, that hurt." <laughs> sure. And, and, and Morimoto came back in and, and shook a hand, and that was that. It was, uh, it was, it was. Uh, and then I, I did. Tammy and I went and and uh, popped over to the to the press box and, and found Morimoto and introduced ourselves. Very nice. Said he's been here a handful of times. Wanted to know if I, I saw the first pitch. <laughs> and I told him, "If you will sign me up as a cook, I will be glad to sign you up as a." He does everything with passion. I will say we grabbed him out to the, brought him out to the Hit Here Cafe to do a little social shoot because we wanted to do, a, at Greg Green's suggestion, do a little unveil. The secret ingredient is sugar. We know that's not what he normally says on the show. It's somebody else, but he agreed to participate, and boy, did he crush it. We, so he put together this little thing, and he just goes, tonight's secret ingredient is sugar! And he screams, <laughs> and it's fantastic. It's fantastic. That's great. But, I, he was awesome. So, so accommodating. Really great work on your part to stall Stump JD. Um, it is still coming. Uh, it's ridiculous. Okay, I don't was, we have listener I, questions? Uh, we do. We have uh, one. Mitch is on deck. Uh, I was inspired, of course. The Padres are in town tonight. We're recording this before Game One of the series to wrap up the homestand. Uh, you know, Tony Gwynn. Like when you look at his reference page, like we'll never see one like that again, right? There was hardly one ever before it. And there will never be one since it. It's lengthy. It's incredible. So Tony Gwynn. 20-year big league career, per season, Jerry, he averaged more doubles than strikeouts. Can you tell me how many strikeouts Tony Gwynn averaged per season? How many he averaged per season? I'm going to say 36. That's insulting to Tony Gwynn. 20, Gary, he averaged 20 punch-outs a year. 20 a year. He averaged 20 strikeouts a year. And 27 doubles a year. That's phenomenal. Isn't that insane? There's, I, I will say this, having faced Tony a couple of times, there, there's, uh, he was one of the guys that, that you would face. Tony Gwynn, Paul Molitor was one of these guys. There, there, was, there was virtually no tell. Part of pitching is disrupting timing, is finding the, the hitter's tell that, that effectively tells you what pitch to throw next. You're, you're trying to read his movements. You're trying to read his bat path. This guy's swing was so efficient, was so con- consistent that you, there was really nothing you could do to, to find the hole. Couldn't find it. And, you know, I, he for a guy who was mostly singles and doubles, I, I will say that Tony Gwynn, when he wanted to get to velocity, he could hit the ball as hard as anybody in the league. And I always envisioned that that's, that, that was the, what it would have been like to face Rod Carew in the prime of his career. And, and I believe that's probably similar to what most experienced when they were facing Ichiro in the prime of his, is that, that they, they opted for a certain type of offensive game 
that didn't have to be that way. I, I can tell you, Tony Gwynn, going out and watching him take batting practice, as it, this guy could hit him wherever you wanted him to hit him. I mean, he could hit him off of the, the facades and, and into the seats with frequency, but he didn't want to give up being a 330 hitter. You know? it's, it's what he did. You know, I did not know I was looking more into Tony Gwynn today. I did not know, and I'm embarrassed to say this, that he was such an incredible college basketball player. I mean, he is the all-time assist leader at San Diego State University. I mean, we're talking about a D1 program here. Amazing, right? And he had an 18-assist game. I mean, I watch a lot of college basketball. Anytime you see 10 assists, it's noteworthy. I mean, 15 assists, you're like, well, this is incredible. This has got to be one of the all-time great performances in school history. 18 assists in a game? That's amazing. When you talk about, you know, when people want to make fun of baseball players for not being athletes— I mean, clearly that guy was an athlete. I think drafted in, in the NBA. Uh, if, if memory serves, I, I think he was drafted by by the then what, what was it, the San Diego Conquistadors oh. of the like it was uh, Did something. Will Ferrell play for this team? <laughs> real team, real team, real team. Yeah, and I, I I don't remember exactly who drafted him, but I'm almost certain that Tony was drafted to really to I'll look into that as an NBA player or given a tryout. There's something. Or maybe it was just urban legend and I bought into it. I don't know. You know, kind of, kind of along those lines, when I saw that he was a third-round draft pick, obviously anyone's initial thought was, okay, all right, who was drafted ahead of Tony Gwynn, right? So I looked at the second round and the first round that year. Uh, Mark Langston, by the way, was first-round draft pick uh, that year. But I couldn't help but notice that drafted a whole round ahead of Tony Gwynn, the Yankees drafted John Elway that year. Yeah, how about that? I mean, actually, I mean, he played in uh, in the Penn League. I forget the name of the small little town. Oneonta. Oh, that's it, Oneonta. Thank you. Nicely done. Uh, but yeah, so John Elway was drafted before Tony Gwynn. You can use that as a. I should use that as a trivia question, I guess. Which Hall of Fame quarterback? That one I would have got. You would have got that one. Yeah, that one. I How Elway got. got out of going to the what Baltimore Colts because he's threatened if he was going. Yeah, he's going to go play baseball. And Tony Gwynn was drafted in the tenth round by the San Diego Clippers. 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 What's his nickname again? Maestro. The, the maestro. Nicely done. I was thinking Tony Gwynn. Mr. Padre. Yeah. <laughs> Nicely done, maestro. Okay, well, you know, that was... It's got saying power. It's got a... It, there's, there's something about that. Yeah, there's something there. Okay, back to your uh, your original Hope the Listener question. Uh, Mitch is chiming in from Australia, Jerry. Ooh. If a, an international listener, he loves listening to the podcast, uh, and especially the unique insight it gives to the organization. Uh, Mitch works in rehabilitation and performance field uh, home in Australia, and he naturally, as a result, takes a huge interest in prospect development that we talk about and swing, pitch mechanics, statistical analysis, that type of thing. So he wanted to ask you, Jerry, when uh, analyzing a prospect or a big league player, how much does the me- do the mechanics and the process go into it compared to analyzing just the straight performance of the statistics? I think the right answer, it's, it's funny that that is mentioned because we were just talking earlier about subtle mechanical changes with a guy like Evan White and what that can produce. We are at a time now in, in baseball, we were probably a little more invested in the, the, the raw abilities and tools in much the same way as we would have been 30, 40 years ago as an industry. But 30, 40 years ago, we were doing it with naked eye. And now we're doing it and measurables, things that we can track from satellite, things that we can track with, you know, tech devices that we can travel with uh, and, and then lend our naked eye. So I think we're probably less consumed with the mechanics of a swing as as opposed to the 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 ability, the physical traits of the swing. So if if 
a player, a, a 21-year-old college junior, is showing you the ability to consistently strike the ball hard, we're not going to be too hung up on how the swing happens. We are more likely to then turn him over to our biomechanical people and restructure the swing in a way that will make him more consistent as a big league hitter, in theory. So we're not as, as hung up on mechanics as we used to be with the hitter. And I will say with the pitcher, and this is it's to me, this is maybe the thing I've learned most thoroughly over the years. When I first started scouting 18, 19 years ago uh, ish, um, I was focused on finding pitchers who were smooth and easy. They were fluid, and it looked like it looked like Zach Greinke. It looked it looked like that fluid Tom Glavin in his prime. Gosh, it's easy for him to throw a baseball. Because generally those guys have staying power. They, they last. And, and they are the more athletic guys that you're going to watch because they, they are able to do things on the mound that look like they look, let's say, almost like a ballet. There, there's not, it doesn't seem to be a lot of stress. Well, what I've learned over time, especially in the last half dozen years, is that from, a, from an actual performance standpoint, or more importantly, from a from a, a an ability to stay healthy standpoint, that's not naturally what works. You know, what works is more often something that looks like the the deliveries that you would have seen in the 1950s. You know, like a Warren Spahn or you know, the big overhead, the Bob Gibson. There's a reason why those guys never got hurt. But to the to the scout in my time, you know, to the scout who's growing up in this century in the game and watching the way the game is, is, is played, you view that as too many moving parts, you know, because for years and years we were taught a much more, uh, let's call it refined, you know, we got to clean this up. Uh, now, to me, it's almost the dirtier, the better. You know, it, there's the more moving parts, the, like, the more likely you're going to find success. There is nothing textbook about the way Edwin Diaz does it. And guys have a hard time hitting a foul ball off, <laughs> you know. Right. So, but it's a now the 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 difficulty there will be, and I think this is why you see, and it leads us to a great point. It's why you see starting pitcher innings uh, starting to let's call it be minimized, and and you're starting to see fewer let's call it four pitch guys, five pitch guys, and you're seeing a lot more two pitch pitchers you're seeing a lot more you know three inning type of of mentality get through the lineup once type guy you're seeing a much higher degree of velocity come from pitchers because by and large they're not doing it free and easy they are cranking it up they are reaching down and they are trying to throw as hard as they can for as long as they can and I think that is that is the newest element in the game that has led us away from scouting the the smooth and easy fluid look and now even the the biomechanical experts will look at a delivery when when the right hand pitcher has the right arm down pointed toward the ground and the left shoulder toward the ceiling in 1995 that would have made a pitching coach throw up now we look at it and sign me up yeah because it's just going to be hard to find guys who can create that kind of physical stuff with that kind of deception. And what we've done is we've traded in the complete game at a, at a modest uh, performance level for a shorter stint of perhaps more dominant 
type performance. And, and that's, that's where the game is today. So we're scouting in a much different way than we were even just 20 years ago. Kind of, kind of along those lines, I'm always intrigued by pitchers who will exclusively work from the stretch. Right? I mean, you talk about like the We've Juan, got one, Marco. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like the Juan Marshall windup, right? The Mark Langston leg kick, which is on the 200 level here at Safeco Field, which every time it's I phenomenal. see it, I'm like, how, how, can you, how is that even possible? I mean, that is so, that is beyond being a dinosaur at this point. But there, I would, I mean, there are advantages to working from the windup, and yet we see a lot of even starters just completely bag that, like Marco, as you said. It's, it's, it's amazing. And a lot of it is what we learned from our, our friends in the MPB. You know, so many of the Japanese pitchers, since we've been exposed to, to baseball in the Far East, have, have shown us. And, and even in recent time, Yu Darvish has done this. Uh, Daisuke Matsuzaka, when he came, did it. There's the, a lot of the delivery that occurs before you get to your balance point over the rubber. So the, the, the original pump over the head, the full swing, the, the hip turn and the shoulder to the back, it's mostly all eyewash to get to the point of balance where, that occurs when you stand over the rubber. So in, in a way that is very, uh, let's call it Nippon ham, the, the, you, you generate as much power by balancing yourself through the mound over the rubber as you will ever by creating all this torque and the torque just requires that you unfold it so in essence what you're doing is you're creating more potential for things going wrong with your timing because there there are more things flying around you know so you see guys you see guys now and we've got one in marco you darvish still does it there's a number of guys around the league you know even to a degree david price taiwan walker there's a number of guys that have done this and you know, while I still think it's cool to look at a full delivery, while I do think that there is advantage in creating the kind of deception that, that these guys will create, they really aren't doing themselves any favors in generating greater stuff than, than just standing there and pitching from a stretch position. Interesting. Good question, Mitch. Well, uh, coming up around the horn, this homestand wraps up tomorrow at 340. Then the Mariners are on the road for a lengthy road trip. The Mariners are back home, final homestand of the season, Monday, September 24th. First four games of that homestand, three against the A's, one against Texas, are all Mariners value games presented by BECU. So bleacher and view level seats, 15 bucks. Main level, terrace club seats, 30 bucks. Then a big weekend will be coming up uh, Friday, September 28th, fan appreciation night, fireworks, a lot of prizes and giveaways. Saturday, King Griffey Jr. Pop Collectible Night. First 20,000 fans taking one of those beauties home. And then, of course, Sunday is Kids Appreciation Day. So a lot coming up when the Mariners come back home. Jerry, as always, thanks for joining us, man. Always a thrill.